0: The Origins of War in Child Abuse by Lloyd Damas. You can get the full text of this and many other books and articles at www.psychohistory.com. This book is read by Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio www.freedomainradio.com. Chapter Seven: Child Abuse, Homicide, and Raids in Tribes. Quote. Each generation of parents commits atrocities against their children, which by God's decree remain invisible to the rest of the world. John Updike The next four chapters will describe the slow, uneven evolution of child-rearing from the fearful, insecure attachments of tribes to the more loving, secure attachments of modern, fully democratic nations. These historical improvements in child-rearing will be shown to decrease the implantation in children of delusional violent alter-egos and increase the achievement of the real self and thereby reduce the amount of homicide, raids and wars. I discovered evidence of the dependence of historical cultural evolution upon increasingly secure attachments of children four decades ago in my book The History of Childhood and have devoted my life since then in seven books and over a hundred scholarly articles to documenting how this psychogenesis took place. I have also published hundreds of additional articles fellow scholars in my two scholarly journals, the Journal of Psychohistory and the Journal of Psychoanalytic Anthropology, in the past 36 years documenting childhood and personality evolution in other times and cultures. That psychogenic parenting evolution rather than genetic evolution, is the central source of historical change as a brand new theory, replacing theories that claim that survival of the fittest, the most aggressive, is what determines which groups survive, and claiming instead that survival of the most cooperative, the most secure, the most attached, is what actually counts historically, and that those who had the most loving caretaking as children become the most cooperative and culturally evolved as adults. Idealization by Anthropologists of Tribal Child-Rearing Anthropologists have written extensively about childhood in tribal cultures. Typical of their conclusions is Roners, commenting from his cross-cultural review of parenting from the human relations area files that tribal mothers were quote, warm and nurturant toward their children, and that the more complex a social-cultural system is, the less warm parents in general tend to be. Their evidence for this is mainly based on the continuous skin contact between nursing mothers and infants, even when the nursing was forced because of maternal need for erotic stimulation and was accompanied by constant genital manipulation of the infant by the mother. The masturbation by mothers of their children, Corbin found in her large, cross-cultural sample of tribes, is widespread. But, as was mentioned previously, she concludes, sex with children is not abusive, because the society itself doesn't call it abuse saying, quote, Children's genitals being fondled does not constitute abuse if in that society the behavior was not prescribed. Maternal incest is what is behind the cross-cultural findings by anthropologists that, quote, Where the mother sleeps closer to the baby than to the father and uses the baby as a substitute spouse, there is more homicide and a higher frequency of war. After all, Another cross-cultural study of adult-child sexual relations finds, experts believe, that there is no reason to believe that sexual contact between an adult and a child is inherently wrong or harmful. Such, quote, experts, as, for instance, Kinsey and Pomeroy, who claimed that, quote, incest between adults and younger children can be satisfying and enriching. Or as all the anthropological books on cross-cultural child-rearing that say, quote, Although mothers masturbating children is widespread, it does not constitute abuse if, in that society, the behavior was not prescribed. The anthropologists report routine, quote, incessant fondling of infants, masturbation by mothers kissing the boy's penis, women passing baby boys back and forth over their heads, taking turns sucking the penis, lying on sons in the male position, and freely masturbating them at night, practices they call, quote, nurturant. Idealization of other cultures is the rule in anthropology, we found in publishing the Journal of Psychoanalytic Anthropology, by leaving out crucial details, as did Margaret Mead in her portrayal of the ubiquitous raping gangs of Samoa as an example of sexual freedom that we should emulate. As I discovered when I took classes with Mead at Columbia University, she routinely idealizes tribal childhood as spoiled and pampered. Most anthropologists do not just idealize child-rearing, they baldly state, without evidence, that tribal mothers are, quote, rarely abusive. as when they say that children who are forced to eat every second sibling are the favored ones who started life with no oral trauma. And that eating one's siblings, believed to be demons, quote, doesn't seem to have affected their personality development. Dozens more statements as bizarre as this are analyzed in the 40 issues of my Journal of Psychoanalytic Anthropology. Murder, Rape and Torture of New Guinea Children Because our task in this chapter is to determine what childhood and war were like in early historical tribes, which of course have left no records other than those archaeologists have uncovered, we will concentrate on more recent observations of tribal cultures before they were much affected by contact with the West. We will therefore begin by discussing childhood in New Guinean, Australian Aboriginal and African tribal cultures that were among the last to be explored and changed by Western cultures. Infanticide rates were enormous in New Guinea, with the first missionaries estimating that two-thirds of the children were murdered by their parents. As in other tribal cultures, abstinence and abortion were well known, but infanticide was mainly what was the practice. So growing children were routinely traumatized while they watched their mothers strangle, or otherwise murder, their siblings. Margaret Mead said of her tribe, quote, They are always throwing infants away here, and not because of lack of resources to feed them. When tribal mothers were asked why they killed their infants, they stated it was because they were demon children, because children are too much trouble, because it was a girl and must be killed, or because her husband would go to another woman for sex if she had to nurse the infant. Children watched their mothers bury their siblings alive, eat them, or toss them to sows to devour. Or else they would force the grown-up children to help them kill their siblings, or even sometimes make them kill live infants purchased for murdering from other tribes. Mothers who ate their children are described as, quote, overcome by frightful hunger for baby meat. Again, not because of lack of food, but because of an inner need to reincorporate infants after losing them at birth. New Guinea infanticide rates are similar to the 50% rates estimated for small-scale societies around the world today. Some tribes kill so many newborns that they regularly have to buy children from neighboring tribes so the tribe won't disappear. Differential infanticide, killing more girl babies, is the rule in tribes all the way back to the child sacrifice of infants to beast goddesses that took place in Paleolithic caves, Jericho, and Stonehenge. The children who watched their mothers killing or eating babies, quote, "...suddenly avoided their parents, shrieked in their presence, or expressed unusual fear of them, recounting dreams about animal, man, beings with the faces of parents smeared with blood." The fears and dreams get stored in their inner alter egos as time bombs, to be exploded later in life. Females in New Guinea are treated brutally. Since they are routinely viewed as secretly being witches, quote, who can kill simply by staring at a person, killer, mother, alter egos, they are often killed simply because they are imagined to have poisoned people. Mothers in New Guinea are horribly abused as girls, being routinely raped by fathers, brothers, visitors, peers, gangs. When they become wives, they are treated brutally by the men and have suicide rates as high as 25%. Mothers are, therefore, Postpartum depressed, and they use their children for sexual stimulation, repeating their own abuse, and then abandoning them emotionally, so they vary between masturbating them and hanging them up in a bag on a tree all day long. Since the men routinely beat up their wives, there is no evidence of spousal intimate love, so mothers are continuously in despair. If they are not forcibly breastfeeding their babies or masturbating them, sucking on their penises— The baby is useless to them as erotic objects and not fed regularly. Small children are routinely allowed to play with sharp knives and burning objects without adults paying any attention to them. Mothers hate themselves and consider themselves bad for having been raped as young girls and for having to endure loveless polygamous marriages. Maternal mirroring is lacking so children do not become secure with others and do not develop an independent self. Children, even recently, are 90% malnourished in New Guinea, studies show, even when food is plentiful, because mothers only feed them a couple of times a day, and they die from starvation while mothers are puzzled by what is wrong with them. The mother's force feeding during erotic nursing, quote, becomes a battle in which the mother clutches the child, shaking it up and down, with the nipple forced into its mouth, until it must either suck or choke. But when not used as an erotic object, they are badly neglected, often thrown away so that abandonment rates run as high as 75% as they are sent out for adoption or fosterage. When not hung on a tree, in a bag or basket, the toddler is discouraged from walking and not allowed to crawl, forced to sit still for hours and make queer noises. All this overstimulation plus abandonment produces extremely insecurely attached children. In the infanticidal mode of child-rearing, who are schizoid personalities with dissociated alter egos embedded in their amygdala networks to carry the pain of their abuse. Schizoid personalities, with their animistic, delusional, magical thinking processes, are the results of parents who simply are incapable of loving. As Masterson concludes, "...the schizoid child feels there is no pathway to the parents." They live in social isolation with an impossibility of an intimate relationship. They have no inner good mother, so their inner attacking mother is experienced as a deadly voice inside. Feeling alone is feeling afraid of death. Masterson calls schizoid patients, quote, safety sensitive because of their twin fears of being controlled and of being hopelessly isolated. In tribal families, there is no hope for forgiveness, only eat mommy or be eaten by her. Yakut shamans hallucinate schizoid self-sacrifice to a bird-of-prey mother, which is like a great bird with an iron beak, hooked claws and a long tail, who cuts its body into bits and devours it. Tribal schizoids then switch into dissociated alter ego trances and repeat their fears in spirit-possession rituals. New Guinea mothers constantly, quote, rub the penis of their infant sons and the little boys have erections while they sleep together naked at night. One boy described to Poole how whenever his mother was depressed or angry she often pulled, pinched, rubbed or flicked a fingernail against his penis until he cried, afraid it might break off. It hurts inside, he said. It bleeds in there and hurts when I pee. Mother, not like my penis, wants to cut it off. Males also masturbated and sucked children's genitals, both sexes, using the child as a maternal breast, as all pedophiles do. Mothers also masturbate and kiss the vagina of baby girls. Malinowski reports watching the widespread sucking of genitals and intercourse between children in Melanesia, encouraged by parents so that most girls are raped by the time they are seven years old. New Guinea fathers rarely care for their little children, but when they do, they mainly fondle their genitals, using the child as a breast object, because they say they get sexually aroused when they watch them nurse. Families in preliterate cultures usually have separate spaces for males, in which the husband and wife live with their respective mothers, and at night the man visits his wife in her house. Physical contact with wives is avoided, and separate sleeping areas are maintained by husbands. A gynarchy, composed of the grandmother, mother, and other females, brings up the children, so the boys have little contact with males in their early years, and are thoroughly ambiguous about their gender. Archaeologists have even determined that, quote, "...there were no Neanderthal families to begin with since women and children lived in separate areas from the males in caves." This arrangement was practiced historically from tribal cultures into early states, even in antiquity. Quote, the women's apartments were separated from the men's quarters by a vaulted door. Ancient Greek couples do not eat together. New Guinea mothers are so violent when using their children sexually that the children regularly blame themselves as they are hurt by them. Quote, mother twist penis tight tight hurt hurt inside cry she not listen mother not like my penis wants to cut it off he wounds himself with a sharp stick now it hurts here outside not in penis look blood feels good good to be a girl no penis because of the constant brutal abuse all schizoid tribal personalities are so insecurely attached that they are extremely uncertain about their genders and most of their adult lives replay the early gender anxieties produced by their parental incest-slash-rejection experiences. New Guinea boys begin this replaying of embedded alter egos at seven, when men conduct fellatio on them, forcing their penises into the boys' mouths and anuses, the same way their mothers earlier used them both in incest and forced feeding. This oral rape begins by blaming mothers as evil defilers of the boys, who have polluted and weakened their sons, with their poisonous menstrual blood. This supposed pollution is countered by forcing the boys to suck the semen of men daily for years, saying, It's the same as your mother's breast milk, but it will make you a strong man, and will prevent them from growing into females. That raping boys orally can make them hard and prevent them from being soft may seem bizarre, but is believed in wholeheartedly nonetheless. Anthropologists sometimes state, without evidence, that the continuous oral rape by men of boys in New Guinea is enthusiastically enjoyed by the boys, who are eager to suck men's penises, and that it has a positive effect on the boys' development. The boys are also bled profusely by men by thrusting sharp leaves back and forth in their nostrils to remove the polluted mother blood inside them, sometimes even sub-incising the penis, cutting it until it splits open, calling the cut a boy's vagina and having intercourse in it. Anthropologists describing this endless fellatio and genital mutilation of boys do not call it rape, stating instead that the great majority of Sambia boys regularly engage in fellatio for years because they thereby learn how to be men, how to protect themselves from dangers of pollution. Both men and women regularly fondle and mouth little boys' penises. Girls, too, are routinely raped and often have their vaginas mutilated in tribal cultures, again, because of extreme gender uncertainties, saying their clitoris must be removed because otherwise it will grow to be a foot long and they could then dominate men. Plus, it helps prevent girls from being, quote, too sexual. Older children routinely gang-rape younger boys and girls, a practice reported by anthropologists with some neutral phrases like They are typically initiated into intercourse by older and more experienced children, a practice termed by one anthropologist as healthy because it gives the child multiple experiences of sexual pleasure. The inner alter egos embedded by all these extremely traumatic child-rearing practices are called spirits or demons and are the central focus of tribal cultural life children's alter egos are usually called finik, and they are said to quote temporarily depart from the body to wander abroad during trances and children regularly tell how their witch alter egos possess their bodies and make them do things new guinea natives can be warm and friendly and then suddenly switch into their altars and kill you because they think you are bewitching them trance possessions by alter Spirits are found in all tribal cultures, in shamans, in witches, and in others in the group, during possession rituals, as groups feel power surges and go out to conduct their killing raids. Drawings of alter-possessed shamans have been found on the walls of ice age, quote, maternal caves. The neurophysiology of possession trances have been well studied as Altered states of consciousness that are entered into by various driving techniques that produce the hyperactivity, convulsive tremors, and grandiose states that dominate those who are in a slow-wave electroencephalogram trance, insensible to pain, united with their spirit alters. Shamans are full-blown multiple personalities becoming their alter egos, not just hearing them as internal voices. Their violent altars are those of the killer mother. Before raids, New Guinea shamans hallucinate that they are embedded with maternal spirits, and they call their war drums the voice of their ancestor mother. Boys in New Guinea are taught to always dominate rather than submit, and to beat up girls, adults urging them to take a branch and stick it up her vagina. To restore their masculinities, boys are encouraged to, quote, Sit facing each other, exchange, endless sexual or personal insults, and then fight each other. Homicide rates are from 60 to 100 times higher in tribal cultures than the current U.S. rate. One careful study of the Gibusi found 60% of all males admitted to having committed one or more homicides, almost all because they became sorcerers. All women are believed to be capable of becoming witches who can kill you by staring at you. Delusional Kill her mother she-demons. So wife-beating is nearly universal. Female suicide rates are enormous, up to 25% of women's deaths. Gang-rape of girls is practiced daily, and the torture and execution of women suspected of being witches who poison men is common. All this extreme misogyny is hardly an atmosphere that encourages maternal love and investment in the care of the next generation. So little improvement in child-rearing and little evolution of personalities has been seen for thousands of years. Cultural evolution is ultimately psychogenic, not genetic, occurring as an increase in parent-child attachment, not as survival of the fittest. Interpersonal violence and raids in New Guinea Since most infants were killed at birth and over half of male adults committed homicide, it is not surprising the deaths in raids, their version of wars, have been said to be minimal. Until recently, anthropologists promulgated the myth of the peaceful savage, until Keeley, Leblanc, and others actually demonstrated by voluminous evidence that both tribal societies today and early historical societies killed 10 to 30 times the proportion of people as even the most violent states in recent times. The archaeological record is rich with evidence, like the studies of Mesolithic hunter-gatherer burials that found over 40% of the men, women, and children died violently. Plus, Keeley found over 25% of adult males of unwesternized tribal societies died from raids, reaching over 60% for Amazonian tribes. Nauft estimated that murder accounted for the deaths of at least 35% of all New Guinea men and 29% of women. Despite anthropologists' assertions that tribal violence is adaptive, and that raids were fought for scarce resources, none of these deaths were over resources at all. All were solely emotional in origin, most of them being blamed on sorcery after imagining being insulted or humiliated. In fact, as we have previously noted, death inflicted by violence from others is always caused by the previous implantation of murderous time bombs in child abuse and has declined from over 80% to under 2%, even in the most bellicose nations in recent centuries, as child rearing has slowly evolved. Homicide rates in New Guinea actually run 60 times the current US rate. They are caused by the same collapse of self-esteem that Gilligan says US murderers experience where they quote imagine themselves to be humiliated and shamed as they routinely were as children tribal cultures are as we have earlier said also often mislabeled as egalitarian what is being referred to is their deep lack of trust in each other coming from terribly insecure childhood attachments which produces such overwhelming fear of the group and of authorities true chiefs cannot be found only big men who may be more violent than others but who cannot be trusted and therefore are only mediators not real leaders even large tribes often find they cannot trust leaders or designate internal peacekeepers since in tribes the mother is an external threat to self-individuation men do not securely attach to them and so also cannot bond to other men as their delegates except in useless symbolic rituals where they cut their veins and smear their maternal menstrual blood on each other to form blood brotherhoods. In New Guinea, quote, they execute prominent individuals who overstep their prerogatives, and Australian aboriginals traditionally eliminated aggressive men who tried to dominate them. Even ownership was looked upon by tribes with disfavor, quote, Those who acquired too much were expected to either engage in gift exchange or destroy their surplus in cleansing, sacrificial ceremonies. So investment in new economic enterprises was missing. Bloody raids are conducted in tribes by small groups when men fuse with their inner killer-mother alter egos who become the death-dealing witch-goddesses of the raids, the warriors saying they are charged with the powerful destructive energy of menstruating women. They fuse with their warrior alter egos by leaving their former self behind and becoming something entirely different. The change, usually accomplished through ritual drumming, dancing, fasting, and sexual abstinence, into a new warrior-like mode of being donated by special body paint, masks, and headdresses. Bonjour, found nearly all tribes had trance-induction rituals that reproduced early trauma and gave them the high of dopamine infusion that led to violence. New Guinea war myths are often based on maternal infanticide themes, such as when the Sambia myth says, Numbulyo's wife, Genji, killed her first male child, so we now fight war. Raids are rituals that establish masculinity for a time, while being fused with the killer mother, as men go into their cult houses like underneath the skirts of their mother, replicate childbirth and rituals by male initiators called mothers and go out to kill others in order to reenact the killings and tortures of their childhoods. Most tribes engage in extensive raids at least once every two years. New Guinea tribes sometimes have dozens of raids a year. Raids since the Paleolithic have been seen as being conducted when possessed by a mother animal, the mistress of the dead, an old woman, a killer mother alter ego. When warriors went out on their purifying head-hunting rituals, they switched into their killing alter egos by a special magic which placed the fighters in a trance-like state of dissociation, in which they became capable of extreme indiscriminate violence which made them capable of killing even their own wives and children. Among the Hua, it is feared that if a person fails to eat the corpse of his or her same sex parent, that person will become stunted and weak. New Guinea men often conduct all night rituals where they are possessed by spirit women who tell them which of the many witches that surround them they should now kill. Warriors become fused with the powerful mother that masturbated them during menstruation. They then decorate themselves with menstrual blood red paint so they can appropriate the fearful power of their killer mothers. Alter egos are often projected into the heads of the enemy, so headhunting was endemic in New Guinea. Quote, leading to endless inter-tribal feuds, and the slightest pretext is seized upon to begin a war to obtain the coveted trophies. Chop off a head and capture the power of the killer mother. They believe they can restore their masculinity by eating the head or penis of an enemy to absorb his strength. New Guinea sorcerers continuously call upon their tribes to slaughter others. Nauft found two-thirds of a sample of Gebusi men had committed homicide. As Kelly puts it, Quote, it is clear that homicide rates are considerably higher in simple foraging societies than in some sedentary agricultural societies with more developed forms of socio political organization. In New Guinea, imaginary humiliations and magical sorcery attacks make immediate retribution necessary. Quote, the assailants spring on their victim from ambush, brutally overpower him, jab poisons directly into his body, and sometimes twist or rip out organs. Fathers help their small boys headhunt by holding his spear hand so he can kill and decapitate some acquaintance or relative. Little attempt is made to rationalize the homicides. Quote, An angry man may attack or even kill another who is in no way related to the object or cause of his rage. This is true not only of violence against outsiders, but of violence within the village. Murderous raids are fought when growth panic becomes excessive when new tasks, such as building houses or expanding gardens, threatens too much personal growth, and after initiations when adolescents grow up and leave their mothers. As the Mai Enga tribe says, quote, When times are good, the men of the clan spoil for a fight. The men designate big men who find a rationalization for fighting, faked provocation phase, and the warriors go out to meet their opponents with massed chanting insults and challenges. When no other clan can be found to raid, they raid their own clansmen. That those killed are bad selves is everywhere apparent. When tribal raiding parties meet women with babies, they usually kill only the male infants, that is, themselves. Prisoners are rarely taken. The easiest raids are burning random houses and axing the families as they try to escape. Victims' heads and penises are taken as trophies, reincorporating their own strong body parts. Evidence of the defleshing and cannibalization of enemies goes back 750,000 years to the earliest tribes, and most tribes say they collect the skulls so they can absorb the fighting strength of their enemies. Indeed, it is good to have enemies because they are good to kill and eat. Many warriors even take the name of the victim they eat, Both sides often give gifts to the other side after the raids are over. When all the killing and victim-eating is finished, quote, The big men of each side make speeches, listing the dead, and set the scene for future exchanges. The victors may profit only in terms of glory. They have no right to invade and occupy the loser's territory. Everyone hurries home, satisfied that he has vindicated his honor. Murder, Rape, and Torture of Australian Aboriginal Children The early infanticidal child-rearing mode of Australian aboriginals has been, arguably, the most abusive and neglectful of all tribal cultures. It is possible that the poor environment of the Australian desert is partially responsible for their lack of progress in child-rearing, though New Guinea was nearly as stuck as they are in early infanticidal mode child-rearing, and they have a far better environment than Australia. The origins of the very violent personalities of Aboriginals are, of course, in no way caused by genetic differences, only developmental. Thousands of Aboriginals have been removed from their parents and brought up by modern city parents, and they turn out to have personalities indistinguishable from others in their adoptive families. The custom of raping Aboriginal children Eating, quote, every second child and making the older children also eat them is termed, quote, a quite favourable picture by Roheim. Mothers regularly forced their children to eat their newborn siblings in the belief that the strength of their first child would be doubled by such a procedure. Sometimes the fetus would be, quote, pulled out by the head, roasted and eaten by the mother and the children and sometimes, quote, a big boy would be killed by the father by being beaten on the head and given to the mother to eat since most newborns in the pacific area from hawaii to tahiti were murdered by their mothers and since their siblings were forced to participate in the killings all adults had killer mother alter egos implanted in their amygdalin fear networks which they were compelled to reenact Hippler says Australian children Attacked infants unceasingly, while the mother rarely intervenes. Children's attacks become so common that one often hears adults saying, Don't kill the baby. But no one interferes, and the child is increasingly made subject to violence and stress. He also says, Children are abused by their mother and others, routinely, brutally jerked, roughly slapped, or shaken, verbally abused using epithets such as, You shit! Frightened by a dangerous world full of demons, though, in reality, the real dangers are from his caretakers, children are terrified to leave the presence of their mothers. Fusion with the killer mother is guaranteed by all these practices, plus the mother is choking the infant with her milk during nursing, the constant masturbation by the mother, of her children's penis and vagina while she lies on top of them, twisting and pinching them as we saw was the practice in New Guinea. The mutilation of young girls' vaginas is also practiced by the aboriginals, in which old men roll emu feathers with a loop of hair. This device is put into the vagina and then removed, pulling away a large part of the womb. The rest of the womb is then cut horizontally and vertically with a stone knife. When this wound is healed, the girl is then circumcised and made to have intercourse with many young men. This mix of blood and semen is collected and given to frail tribesmen as a fortifying elixir. Again, the fusion with the killer mother's blood is imagined to increase the strength of the male, who is uncertain of its masculinity. Males marry many wives and even rape their own daughters in order to fortify their masculinity, and fathers often have boy wives to absorb some of their maleness. It is not surprising that with both boys and girls, quote, almost their only and Certainly their supreme game was coitus, particularly licking the vagina of girls to increase their strength. Gang raping is constant among Aboriginals, as it is in all tribal cultures. Raheim calls the constant rape of Aboriginal children far more normal than the sexuality of the European male, since the repression of sexuality need not be as deep as it is among Europeans. The initial ritual of Aboriginal boys is accomplished by throwing them into a trench called the old woman, with a bullroar called the mother, her womb, repeating their birth by going through a birth tunnel with an umbilical rope attached, being covered by the menstrual blood that can cause you to die, and then sub them with a slit made on the underside of his penis that is said to create a powerful vagina. The men then have intercourse in the split on the underside of the penis, like a split-open frankfurter. Equipped with a vagina and the most powerful blood of the old serpent woman, who roams the desert in search of people to eat, warriors go out to kill anyone they can find, living in dread of enemies, who are killer mother serpents, creating faked provocations of some fancied wrongs that might justify the killing, either individually or in small groups. Many Australian tribes ate their dead enemies, including their neighbours, though not for the sake of food. Australian aboriginals also never neglect to massacre all strangers who fall into their power. Men, women and children are massacred indiscriminately. A majority of adult men are killed by homicide and over a quarter are killed in warfare. These patterns have not changed in millennia fighting scenes are extensively depicted in aboriginal rock art dating back at least 10,000 years. When child-rearing does not change, economies and cultures do not change. Infanticide, rape and violence in African tribes When one turns on the television news and hears that A quarter million people have died in Darfur, Africa, as Muslim military gangs attacked the south. The motivation for this carnage is usually ascribed to their communist ideologies, until one learns that what they actually did was chop off the penises of little boys and rape little girls, hardly the stated goal of materialist communism. But if one knows that Darfur boys are routinely genitally mutilated and that little girls both genitally mutilated and raped, as most Africans were, the motivation for the violence becomes more obviously a reinflection of childhood traumas upon others. The mutilation of boys is, quote, a practice that serves as a core rite of passage for young men. Sometimes removing all the skin from the penis, the chopping off of girls' genitals is practiced upon 90% of all women in Darfur, and the rape of girls is common in Africa. The core of these abuses lies in the widespread African practice of mutilating the genitals of African girls, a sadistic sexual assault that is said to be sexually arousing to those who attend the ceremony. Mothers, not men, insist on chopping off their daughters' genitals, producing horrendous pain, massive bleeding, and raging infection. It currently is found in 28 African countries, affecting about 130 million women in 89% of Sudanese women, and in 97% of uneducated Egyptian families, and 66% of Egyptian-educated families. It began, historically, thousands of years ago, before the nations became Muslim, so it's not caused by Islamic beliefs. Quote, Girls tremble as they hear about the experiences of other girls. First there is fear, and then the appalling memory of the experience. Some girls live with a phobia that one or the other parent will kill them. Also, most African tribal mothers still kill at least one of their children, sometimes as a child sacrifice to the gods. Most African tribes practice all the abusive and neglectful child-rearing practices described above for New Guinea and Australian families. Infanticide, of course, is a routine practice in African tribes, as in tribal cultures around the world with more girls than boys killed at birth even when food is easily available african mothers are often described as giving them quote a large share of cuffs and kicks and not overmuch food overworked mothers rarely talk to or look at or praise or play with their children hanging them as infants on trees girls are married off in their early teens to older men chosen by their parents most Mothers beat and cane their children from infancy, frighten them with dangerous spirits, abandon them because they believed them to be witches, and so on. Boys, too, are commonly raped by older men in much of Africa, both orally and anally. Even boy wives are known, and fathers sell their boys to men for sex, or to boy brothels. Boys are taught to hate their enemies, and because they are ambivalent about their masculinity, to prepare for a life of fighting— anthropologists who report quote peaceful tribes like the San Bushmen have been disproven. In fact, many African tribes have been measured to have 50 times the homicide rate as modern nations, with the majority of males admitting to committing at least one homicide. As the Kung explain it, they often go into alternate states, alter egos, when, quote, the Umma lifts you in your belly and makes you tremble. You experience death, you give up who you are, you are reborn, the boy becomes a man, the man a hero. And they go out and find someone to kill. Before violent outbursts, Africans are often possessed by their inner spirit selves. Quote, Indulging in filthy language and seized by a fit of rage punctuated by convulsions, they feel they have lost their soul. Arutam and go out to kill others in raids to recover their soul, believing if they fail to kill someone they will not be entitled to obtain new Arutam souls and would die within weeks. Their leader, often a full chief, is seen as a super-powerful killing mother with whom to fuse. Raids are for the purpose of killing and securing as many human heads as possible, among the headhunters like the Jivaro, but no case can be found of war being pursued to seize territory. Throughout African history, slavery was rife, and, quote, three men could not be sent on a journey together, for fear two of them may combine and sell the third. In some tribes, any man falling into their hands is killed and eaten. With the development of slavery, kingship, and the early state, we move to the next chapter on Child Abuse and War in Early States. Lloyd Damas is editor of the Journal of Psychohistory and director of the Institute for Psychohistory, psychohistory.com. This article is Chapter 7 of the forthcoming book The Origins of War in Child Abuse.